Since the earliest days of the 2016 presidential campaign, people online, on television, and in academia have compared Donald Trump to historical fascists like the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. As the election approached, the Washington Post graded him on a scale of zero to four Benitos. And The Guardian asked, should we even go there, in its roundup of historians comparing fascism to Trumpism. But all along, others have pushed back, sometimes forcefully, against the comparison. On the one side are historians and pundits who believe the parallels with Hitler's Germany and Mussolini's Italy are too prominent to dismiss. And on the other are those who argue the comparison is stretched and the label is overused. The debate has only intensified since Trump refused to concede the 2020 election and announced his intention to run for president again in 2024. Today on the show, we're talking to Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor at New York University, about the case for calling the GOP fascist. And Daniel Bessner, a professor at the University of Washington, who argues that the term is meaningless in today's politics. I'm Alex Perrine. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, a professor of history at New York University, has written extensively on authoritarianism and threats to democracy. For years, she resisted ascribing the term fascist to Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. Recently, however, she's begun to revise that opinion. Trump offers Americans no policy ideas, she writes, but rather a classic fascist cocktail of negative emotions, satisfying promises of revenge, and a sense of heroism and power. Ruth, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here. So to get really basic here, where does fascism come from and what distinguishes fascism from other forms of authoritarianism? Fascism is the original phase of authoritarianism along with early communism. Mm -hmm. When a population has undergone huge dislocations or they perceive that there's been changes in society that are very rapid, too rapid for their taste, these are moments when demagogues appeal. And Mussolini was the first to come up after the war and promise this enticing mixture of hypernationalism and imperialism, like we're going to revive the Roman Empire. Mm. So Mussolini defined fascism in 1922 already as a revolution of reaction. Mm. And that's a very good definition, actually. Is one of the distinguishing features of fascism that sort of turn back the clock element? It's a double thing because there's a whole strand of fascism which is very technocratic, mm. where it's, you know, it's always infrastructure week and Hitler built the <laughs> Autobahn and Mussolini <laughs> supposedly made the trains run on time. And this is very important up to today's authoritarians. And yet, as Trump recognized, you also have to channel nostalgia. And these things mm -hmm. go together. They might seem contradictory, but in the fascist mind, they are not. So it's not make the America great. It's make America great again. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're trying to sort of get to the bottom of or sort out somehow is how important it is to use this label with reference to today's Republican Party, to Donald Trump and his potential successes. And it seemed to me that you have held off on using the term fascist to describe Trump for a long time. So can you just talk us through your thought process about that label and when it makes sense to apply it to a leader in the U.S.? 
Yeah, I didn't at the beginning. I thought it was going to be counterproductive, actually, to start calling Trump a fascist. And a lot of what I've been doing since 2016, I actually decided to devote, you know, my time to educating the public, also educating journalists who who perhaps were not familiar with authoritarianism and what fascism can look like today. Classic fascism wasn't just the one-party state and no opposition, you know, allowed at all, but these were also expansionist regimes. Trump is a different uh, kind of creature. His way of having influence is different. Right. So I felt it would be misleading in a nutshell. But now, if you compare platforms, especially on demographic and racial issues and immigrants with classic fascism, they match up extremely well. And so now, especially since January 6th, I will label Trump and also Ron DeSantis. I call him now the Florida fascist. I think there is a case to be made for that now. What is it about January 6th that really stands out to you as justifying the use of the term fascism? So what justifies the use of the term fascism is that Trump and company and the GOP tried to stage a violent coup attempt. Mm -hmm. The other reason to use the fascist label is that the GOP, they're trying to say they're conservatives and they're acting out of, you know, a desire to preserve tradition and they're patriots. Well, conservatives do not try and have violent coups. Mm-hmm. Whereas Trump was, as Bill Barr said, he was a wrecking ball. And fascists are wrecking balls. One thing that you're pretty careful to point out is that there are stages in a fascist regime. So I'm wondering, how do you recommend that people keep track of these very stages and understand that there may not be all the elements of fascism in place during a campaign, but you don't want to get to the second term in office with like full-blown fascism? Nobody, you know, knows or hardly cares about Mussolini, but he's extremely important for understanding today because he was a prime minister of a democracy for three years. Mm-hmm. And then he declared dictatorship because he needed to escape an investigation that was for corruption and murder that was going to bring him down. Also, that's very uh, relevant today. So there are evolutions in these things. What January 6th did was to radicalize the party. Today, they're consumed with a cover-up of their crimes. Mm-hmm. Everything they're doing is meant to cover up their crimes. And it also showed them the possibilities of violence. Mm-hmm. The last point I want to make here is when a party is morphing into a party that's going to support autocracy, you can look at who is leaving the party or forced to leave and who's coming in. Mm-hmm. You have Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, you have George Santos. Again, you have people who participated in January 6th who are being encouraged to run for office. So that's what January 6th did it, like catapulted the GOP into this next phase. The other thing I want to ask you about is the base itself. We've talked about having a charismatic leader and also a cadre around him. But how important is the nature of the base itself to defining a fascist regime? It's very important. And I mean... We're also seeing something extremely distressing slash interesting now. Fox is an extraordinary vehicle of indoctrination. So both Fox and people like autocratic wannabes like Ron DeSantis are actually basing their platforms and what they're doing on the most extreme part of the voter base. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the radicalized base is actually being allowed to set the agenda. And that's why people like Marjorie Taylor Greene 
have such prominence and power right now. If we're comparing today's circumstances with the 1930s, the type of media that's available, I would imagine, suggests that the base just has more of a voice and there's more of a dynamic between the base and the leaders. But I'm curious what you think of that. Because one critique that I've heard of on the other side of this fascism debate is you don't have an organization like the Hitler Youth or Brown Shirts. But I'm wondering if maybe in this historical moment, it's going to take a different form. Yeah, that's a super interesting point. Two things. One, both in the US and in Brazil, they were not able to get the military's help for their coups. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? This is the new thing you do. You construct what I call a private army of thugs, a bespoke army of thugs. So that's a new thing. But there is more of a dynamic and a feedback loop among the leader Mm -hmm. and the, let's say, the right-wing media ecosystem. And part of this is the nature of social media. In the 30s, you were largely a consumer of propaganda because Mm -hmm. you read the paper, you listen passively to the radio. Right, you go to the rally and you can cheer, but that's about as much input as you're going to have. That's it. Now you consume, but you also are a producer. And propaganda works through repetition with tiny variants. And it's ideal that you add a meme, you retweet, you add, you know, emoji. So you're you're actually producing and circulating in your own right. There are so many content creators who are mm-hmm. able to do what the Nazis called synchronization. And we've seen this coming together in an extraordinary way among the right-wing media slash politics system, these talking points. That discussion of, I think, sort of this current moment kind of gets at, I think, one of the core issues of what I guess we can call the fascism debate. So you have, you, I think you have one sort of rhetorical or political definition of fascism, and then you have one more strictly historical definition, which says, well, fascism was a European political movement that came out of the post-World War I era or something like that. And, and we don't have those conditions here. We don't have the European political tradition here. We have a global far right, but fascism is maybe not the best term to use. I'm sort of just wondering if you think, do we need a new term for this international far right? I think that fascism is, it's a very effective term to use. And, you know, many people were very impatient with me or irritated. (laughs) For not using it. (laughs) Yes, because it's super satisfying, you know, this guy's a fascist. But the key is to educate people that it's not going to look like it did in the 30s. These things don't work that way. That's why you have to educate people on you keep elections going. You know, corruption looks different. Mm -hmm. Even violence. What's very interesting is the same groups are targeted over and over again. So there are all these through lines which make me much more comfortable using the word fascist as long as we don't expect there to be a one-party state. That's what I've been trying to do is is educate people to see that this is what fascism can look like in our own time. Right, right. I want to throw this forward a bit because the debate over whether we can talk about fascism in America really heated up with Trump's election. But beyond Trump, You've mentioned, for instance, Ron DeSantis. What are the hallmarks there? How do you recognize burgeoning fascism in someone who isn't the head of state at this point? 
So there is a tradition of authoritarians starting out at the local level and making their cities or places their heads of into laboratories for autocracy. And Duterte in the Philippines did that when he was mayor of Davao. So Ron DeSantis is in this tradition. He actually has a kind of authoritarian personality. He's very remote. He doesn't like people. He's doing his best to have a personality cult. And I've been following this because we haven't talked about personality cults, but they're absolutely essential. You have to be the man of the people, but you have to be the man above all other men. So you have the everyman and the superman for it to work. So Ron DeSantis, we had that whole phase of being the man of the people. And now he's uh, he's depicting himself in these scary dictator poses where you'll see him from the back looking at a crowd. He's also practiced autocratic capture. And that is when you make the bureaucracies, as he's done with the Department of Education and the Department of Health, into fiefdoms for loyalists. Trump did this with the State Department and many other fiefdoms he had. He just wasn't there long enough to complete it. I'm curious from your work, if you see any analogies from history, where you have a kind of forerunner like Trump, who you identify as fascist, but doesn't have the competence of a figure like Mussolini. Like He's not actually completing impressive infrastructure projects. Like there isn't the efficiency that we associate with fascism in Trump. And that doesn't seem intentional. It just, it seems to be a function of his own weakness. And then you have another figure following behind who might be more capable. Is that something you've seen before? Yes, it is. But I am uh, of a different point of view than many people. Trump was extremely efficient at the things he cared about which was propaganda and radicalizing people and creating loyalty to himself. He also wanted to make money off the presidency, which is another autocratic thing. The takeaway here is that he didn't have any interest in governing in the way that most Americans understood that term. He had different goals. For my last question then, can I just follow up on that? Because I'm fascinated by this idea of his goals as compared to Hitler or Mussolini. And maybe I'm being too generous to them, but they seem genuinely interested in executing a project of making the state efficient, modernizing it, and instituting a policy agenda. More than just staying out of jail, you mean? More than just avoiding prosecution? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not saying, you know, that they weren't interested in getting rich or, or all, all of that stuff, but that it seems like... At least, you know, that that old saw that Mussolini made the trains run on time, like th- that seems to be, have been an important element of both of those regimes. It was, it's a function of them being there during the Depression and after World War I. Mm. Also, they are expansionist regimes from the very beginning. Trump is a different animal. When you have someone who's very disruptive, people can get tired of that, especially conservative elites. Like some people think Trump has just too much baggage. Mm-hmm. And it benefits the people who like DeSantis who come in and and are, again, the policies are going to be the same, but he's not going to be, you know, blustering about shooting people. That's why I tweeted, I think, you know, that he would destroy democracy with deadly efficiency. Thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. Sure. It's a really good conversation. So there is a persuasive case that there are significant similarities between Trump's actions and his rhetoric and that of historical fascists like Mussolini. After the break, we're talking to Daniel Bessner about why he thinks that's not enough to justify describing today's Republican Party as fascist. 
We've been talking about the case for calling part of the American right, including Trump and his base, fascist. But over the last century, the term fascism has been used to describe a wide range of figures and movements in America. How helpful is a label that can be and has been applied to such a range of political expression? Daniel Bessner, a historian at the University of Washington, recently reviewed Bruce Kuklick's book, Fascism Comes to America, A Century of Obsession in Politics and Culture, which traces the changing ways the term fascism has been used here. Daniel thinks the term's political utility is doubtful. Fascist, he writes, has become little more than an all-purpose curse word. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. In your review, you mentioned a survey that a social theorist named Stuart Chase did in the 1930s, where he basically asked a bunch of ordinary people, what is fascism? How would you describe fascism? And the answers really range widely from there's a schoolboy who defines it as something that's got to be licked and a farmer who describes it as just lawlessness, which I think demonstrates the sort of range of understanding and misunderstanding that you're trying to describe in the review. Can you walk us through some of the ways people have understood fascism in America, some of the people who've been accused of being fascists? Over the last century, since Mussolini renamed his political party, the National Fascist Party, in the early 1920s, and especially since the 1930s, in the United States, the term fascist has been used in a diversity of ways. In the 1930s until World War II, it was really a willy-nilly term where people referred to Franklin Roosevelt as fascist, they referred to Huey Long as fascist, they referred to people across the political spectrum as fascist. During World War II, the meaning of the term stabilizes, and it basically refers to the extreme right wing of the political spectrum. That meaning is relatively stable until sometime in the mid-1960s when it again becomes more of a so-called floating signifier, where Lyndon Johnson is fascist, Richard Nixon is fascist, Reagan is fascist, Obama is fascist, Bush is fascist, etc., etc. And in fact, I think we're living through a kind of return to the World War II moment now, where since Trump's election in 2016, Fascist has really been colonized by the American broad left to refer to, once again, the extreme right wing of the political spectrum. So there are stages of fascism use, and they're relatively coherent. So there's this really vigorous, sometimes emotional debate about whether fascism exists in the United States, whether it's appropriate to call Trump a fascist or the Republican Party a fascist. You think the debate gets a little confused, and in fact, you make a sort of distinction between two different kinds of debates happening at the same time. Can you explain what you see as the conversations that are actually going on here? There's basically two fascist debates that run parallel. One concerns the analytical utility of the term. You know, if you're a social scientist and you're saying today is the United States fascist, how do you determine that? And then there's a debate that concerns the political utility of the term, whether it helps you achieve your goals. And, and these debates often get conflated and people usually don't make analytical distinctions. So I think usually it, it takes the form, at least online, where the literati go as a, a, the analytical debate. Is the checklist of fascism reached or not? And I actually don't find that especially useful because a lot of the features that people put on their checklist of fascism are common to authoritarian regimes and long pre dated fascism, which emerged in the 20s and 1930s. 
but then there's also the what I would say the more emotional aspect of the debate, which relates to one's political identity and how one uses the term politically. And and as I write in the piece, I think that's the reason that the debate is so rancorous because you would assume if it's an analytical debate, I mean, like academics are annoying and we yell at each other, but the the rancor is is really unique. People don't get this mad when you're identifying something as authoritarian or not. And I think that emotion comes from the fact that people identify as anti-fascist. And to say that there's not an American fascism or that it's not a useful term, which is my position, I don't think it's useful analytically and I don't think it's useful politically, is perceived as an attack on one's political identification. So you just sort of staked your claim there. You don't think it's useful. Why don't you just take us, take us through broadly why you don't think it's useful in the American context? Well, analytically, I don't think it's useful. I've spent a lot of my professional career studying Weimar and Nazi Germany, and I don't think the modern United States or the structural conditions of the modern United States are meaningfully comparable to the conditions that existed in Weimar and Nazi Germany. The two conditions that people like Adam Tooze usually point to, and which I agree with, is that first, there's not that general experience of total war, which led to things like a generation of traumatized veterans who go on to form street gangs that, that literally fight in the streets and a profound disillusionment with modernity and technology and a search for this type of reactionary modernism in the words of Jeffrey Herf. And there's also not the existence of a powerful left that encourages capitalist interests to align with the reactionary right. And another condition I would add to that is that there isn't the existence of a state that is literally capable of being taken over by by some by by a fascist group. The state is just more entrenched and powerful, particularly in the modern United States states than it was in Weimar and Nazi Germany. So I don't think it's analytically useful. So that's your uh, take, I guess, on the analytical question. What about the political utility of the term? In terms of politics, I think everyone here but I think hopefully agree, is that the left has been using the term fascist to describe political enemies for a century, and we're not exactly closer to the left-wing utopia that we imagine, let alone seizing power. So I don't think it's a politically useful term. And I think that one could get what does seem like a politically useful message of defending democracy without the fascist analogy. I don't think you need the identification of fascists to say that democracy is in trouble. Um, and, and more important, I think it actually occludes what are profoundly American traditions, militaristic racism, xenophobia, a violent obsession with incarcerating minorities. We're not fascist inventions. You don't actually need the foreign term fascist to understand what happened in the United States or its history. So for both analytical and political reasons, I don't think it's especially useful. I think it's good that you are making the sort of distinction here between the debate over whether it's politically useful to invoke fascism and then the sort of whether it's analytically useful to describe the current moment as fascistic. But to be a little bit glib, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the sparkling authoritarianism joke, right? Where it's like the reference to champagne. Well, that's right. It can only be fascism if, if it came from the fascist region of Italy in, <laughs> I in nineteen forty. This, <laughs> this is no, great. If only if it came from the you know the fascism region of Italy in, in the nineteen twenties. So otherwise, it's just prosecco. Otherwise, it's just sparkling authoritarianism. Got right. It. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not someone who throws around fascist as a term very liberally or anything, not to make a sort of terrible <laughs> joke. But if you're making the sort of eminently defensible point that a lot of what we describe as fascist has 
these deep American roots and is ingrained in American society. But at the same time, if we have this term that has been agreed upon to mean right-wing authoritarianism, why does it have to be the form that it took in the 1940s? Why can't we continue using that term to describe contemporary versions of this thing? I think there's two reasons. I mean, you can if you could prove that it's politically useful. And I would say that it has proven not to be politically useful. I think it's politically neutral at best. And then I would say, uh, does that actually occlude the fact that you just like, like you just said that these things have American sources, because I don't care what anyone says, when you use the term fascist, you think of Nazi Germany. And I think that that implies that the United States doesn't have its own indigenous, racist, imperialist, and xenophobic traditions that the word fascist occludes and makes it seem far in a sense. And I would just say analytically, the problems that we face in 2023 are just not those of that confronted Weimar and Nazi Germany flat out. They're just not. You sort of make the case that, you know, America had fascists and had Nazis, but they were never in government. They weren't a hugely powerful force. But I would wonder if there's some utility in highlighting the actually existing American tradition of, you know, not that fascism is something that happens over there. Well, here's a question, because I think you can convincingly go with the checklist approach, or I think you can convincingly make the argument you're making, which is actually there's a distinct tradition that you have to be in and context in order to say it's fascism. But what about historical analogy? Because I think a lot of what's happening is analogy, right? People are saying this looks a lot like fascism. And rhetorically, that's a powerful point, or it feels powerful, because the 1940s and the post-war years were a period when Americans and people in much of Western Europe all agreed that there was something that was bad and that was fascism. It's a moment of consensus that's quite unusual in history, right? And so that there's a temptation to draw the analogy without saying this is literally the same thing, this is the same historical moment. You're saying this is, this is a lot like this, and we all agreed that that was bad. Totally. So let's get into the analytical political distinction. I don't like doing this, but I'll do it as a Jew. I find it absurd that anyone compares what's going on in 2023 America to what happened in Nazi Germany. It just doesn't compare. There's no way that one can make an analogical point to what happened in Nazi Germany to modern day America without it's kind of offensive, actually. It's just not similar, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Although, it just aren't isn't. They, when, when, say, someone like Timothy Snyder invokes tyranny in Nazi Germany or fascism more generally, it's as a warning rather than as saying something on the level of the Holocaust is happening here. Right. And I think it's a, a misdiagnosis of, of what is happening and what is going to be needed to stop it. Because, there, again, I don't think the structuring conditions are meaningfully uh, comparable. So let's go to the political usefulness. You have a point in the piece where you say that people have been calling their enemies fascist for a long time, particularly on the left. What is the the case for doing that? I mean, you mentioned a couple of examples where you say, actually, it is kind of powerful when Angela Davis called people a fascist. She's making, it's a way of making a point. Is it persuasive? Maybe not. But who, and, and tell us who she is calling a fascist, how she is using it. So she referred to, if I remember correctly, the Vietnam War as, as a fascistic war. And she referred to basically the prison industrial complex as a fascist structure. And what she was intending to do, I think, was to help Americans appreciate that, you know, their liberal democratic capitalist society actually in certain ways uncomfortably mirrors 
the experience of Nazi Germany. I didn't get into this into the piece, but what she was effectively doing there was building on Herbert Marcuse, who was a member of the Frankfurt School, a German exile intellectual who experienced fascism firsthand in Weimar Germany, who argued in the early 1960s that liberalism, sort of like a neutral liberalism, actually enables fascist conditions. So Marcuse was uh, identifying liberalism as fascism, which I, I don't think is right. And Davis was, in my understanding of her, building upon that with the intention of helping Americans appreciate, you know, uh, uncomfortable realities. I would say as a political project, that didn't work. Right. So there's two ways of thinking about it, right? One, one is she's making a statement. So she's using this word that, again, everyone has agreed this describes something that's bad and applying it to something that people don't necessarily agree is bad. Well, you're saying it doesn't work because you're saying it didn't convince everyone of her point of view. Or really anyone. There's no like political <laughs> coalition. I mean, we're, we're 50 plus years on from that. How have we as a society done in confronting the racialized prison industrial complex? Uh, mm-hmm. And I would say, I, I would argue, I would bet Davis would say like that she didn't expect this to have that sort of effect, but that's what she was doing. And that's what the debate is over today. You know, as far as I know, Davis hasn't contributed to the most recent debates um, at all, probably because she doesn't think it's that important would be my guess. And then in the years since then, you have loads of isolated instances of people saying Obama's a fascist, Hillary Clinton's a fascist, anyone under the sun they don't like is a fascist. But something changed in 2016, and and you see a real uptick in people using this word and becoming much more serious about whether it's justified to use this word. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, talk us through that. Why do you think it became important for people to identify Trump as a fascist? Because there was also at the same time a discourse going on about how, which is still ongoing, about how Trump was actually the summation of all of these fringe traditions in American politics. And and people, like a very, very common argument is like, nothing's new. This is, Trump is the return of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so in American politics. Well, I think fundamentally the outsized liberal response to Trump emerged from his affect and the fact that everyone thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. So so that's the basis. But why the fascist debate has become so powerful and so rancorous uh, and the way I approach this is why didn't why wasn't this debate? Why didn't this debate happen under Bush? If you were, you know, a a dead alien looking at the the universe, you would say that guy seems a lot more Nazi like than that guy. How come this debate really didn't? define the Bush administration, it's because I think liberalism is in crisis. And liberalism was not in as much crisis under Bush as it is today. I I think Bush initiated, I actually have an article in Jacobin that came out today that says the Iraq war you could view as initiating 20 years of of liberal crisis. Then you have the 2008-2009 collapse. You have the various interventions in Libya, Syria, Ukraine. You have, you know, the the liberal entrepreneur, Sam Bankman-Fried or Elizabeth Holmes failing. So a lot of the liberal promises of the 1990s and 2000s proved not to be true. So I think in a moment when liberalism is is in crisis and there's no clear identifiable existential ideological enemy like the Soviet Union anymore, liberals and liberalism as a structure have needed to identify fascists in order to re-justify themselves as a vital center, which is why the talk of fascism exploded under someone like Trump and not under someone like Bush. It's, it's effectively because liberalism is in a moment of crisis right now. One of the arguments for using the term fascist to describe Trump and Republicans is to convey how serious the threat they pose is and to try to motivate people to vote against them. 
In the piece, you argue that there are actually much better ways to motivate people. Tell us what you have in mind. It's the classic old giving people material goods. I actually think we're entering kind of a post-ideological age where ideology is going to be less determinative of history and international affairs than it was over the previous century or so. And I think it's just the old standby. Give people material goods. Give people good jobs. Give people money allow working Americans to live decent and noble lives. <laughs> That's the best way to win people over the Democratic Party. But unfortunately, the Democratic Party has become an elite-focused, meritocratic-based institution that is not exactly willing to promote policies of redistribution. Well, on that note, thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. <laughs> Appreciate it. You can read Daniel Bessner's piece, Does American Fascism Exist? at newrepublic.com. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Lorraine Cadamatori assisted on this episode. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is rate us five stars and zero benitos wherever you rate your podcasts and your authoritarian regimes. Every review helps. Thanks for listening.